0: Well, let's pray as we begin. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Start this morning with a little bit of history. On Monday, January 15th in 1973, a historic meeting occurred. Then Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir finally got an audience at the Vatican. A little bit of context here, in 1973, the Vatican still hadn't recognized the country of Israel formally, and by most accounts, it hadn't really recognized the atrocities of the Holocaust and wouldn't bear some of the responsibility for those dark years in Germany and Poland for another two decades. The Vatican at that time was interested in this meeting because they wanted ownership of holy sites in Jerusalem, and they were concerned about the constant warring in the Middle East. So needless to say, Golda Meir was nervous uh, for this meeting. Born in 1898 in Kiev, Ukraine, Meir has her first memory as uh, uh, her father, who was a carpenter, frantically boarding up their home from the inside at the onset of the Russian pogroms. And soon afterward, she was fortunate to emigrate to the United States with her family, eventually settling in Milwaukee. Uh, she was a forerunner of the Zionist movement. She emigrated to Palestine in her 20s to work in a kibbutz. And she fought for a Jewish state and eventually ascended to this preeminent role of the prime minister of Israel. She had sought this meeting for a very long time with the Pope to speak boldly and earnestly about the plight of her people. And once granted, the gravitas, the weight of that meeting, began to overwhelm her. She began to think, how, how do I speak for something like the Holocaust? How do I deal with some frustrations that I might have? Will I and the entire Israeli cause be minimized under the weight of the papacy? How did I end up in this situation where I'm somehow becoming the spokesperson for thousands of years of a people? So before meeting with Pope Paul, my ear was heard saying to her associates, listen, what's going on here? Me, a daughter of Moshe Mabovich, a carpenter from Milwaukee, going to meet the Pope of the Catholic. And one of her people replied, remember Golda, carpentry is a profession held in high regard around here. (laughs) I love this story, I love the setting of it, and I love the humor in the midst of that weighty moment. Something that puts into sharper perspective the importance of a moment like that. And I like the idea of being reminded that we are just sort of a moment. We are a blip on the radar. We are just a little notch on a much grander timeline, which is what I believe gold in my ear felt in that moment. A blip on the radar of human history. Psalm 90 begins a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Now, many scholars have gone to great lengths to prove that Moses was not the author of this psalm, as well as its sister psalm, Psalm 91. But the more I read, the more reason, I I, I see no reason to believe that he didn't author this. The imagery is really vivid. It's evocative of Moses' years in the wilderness with the people of Israel in the desert, shepherding this reluctant flock of people known as the people of God. It's a psalm that is beautiful, and it's harsh, and it's faithful, and it's emotional. And it speaks to God's faithfulness, to human frailness, and to what our daily response ought to be. So I decided on this psalm today. We kind of get to pick psalms each Sunday. If you haven't followed along this summer, we're kind of picking in our reading schedule. So I had a bunch of psalms to choose from, but I chose this one because I was interested in Moses' authorship, but mostly because of verse 17. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. What a powerful prayer that is. So this morning, I want to talk about work. That's what I want to talk about this morning. In many ways, I want to Focus on this this morning because that's what I talk about with so many of you whenever I get an opportunity to sit down and talk with you over coffee or in the garden corner or up in my office or at Pages for breakfast. The first topic and sometimes the only topic that we talk about is work. My work, your work, our work together. And if you're like me, your work can easily consume your life. You weigh, a lake at, you weigh a lake at, awake at night thinking about your work. That was a tough one for some reason. <laughs> you lay awake at night thinking about your work. You wonder what your work is gonna look like tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. Work is part of our reality as human beings. But do you ever ponder the work that biblically, the reality that biblically we're not really created for much of the work that we do, the kind of labor that is hard and it's difficult and it takes all of what we have and leaves us empty and unbalanced. That's not what we're created for. We're not created for work that consumes the better part of our life and often defines who we are. Adam and Eve were created to work initially long before the fall. They were in that garden. They were tending to that garden. But they were not made to labor tirelessly. That only came as a result of sin, of the fall, sin entering the world. But here Moses has this great perspective on hard work, hard toil, a perspective that knows that God doesn't leave us To our work, but he desires to redeem the burden of work, to work through our work. I know that God wants to prosper my work, and and part of that is because he's created a life in which the vast majority of my life is my work. And that's the same for many of you, right? That we give so much of our lives, how would God not want it to prosper? Psalms. Psalm 90 puts our work in proper perspective. So I want to dig into these words of Moses, and you can follow along. I've got, I'll have it up on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bible. As we walk up to that last verse, prosper the work of our hands. Verses 1 and 2 read, Lord, you have been our dwelling place for all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever. You had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. God has a lot of vivid imagery for who he is throughout the Psalms. Father, mother, king, shepherd. And here in Psalm 90, he is called home. Our home, our dwelling place. I envision Moses looking down from his Mount Sinai descent to the people gathered in the wilderness and past the people is that tent of meeting known as the tabernacle, the house that's built for God's presence. And, and, and I envision Moses saying in his own heart, God, you are our home. You're our home, our eternal home. Before these mountains existed, before anything that you made was made, you were there, God. You are our home. Any good assessment of human life and work and what we do here on earth must begin by asserting that God is our eternal home, our source of refreshment, our resting place. He was in existence long before us and will continue to be at work long after we are gone. His timeline is infinite and ours is very small. Verses one and two are about God. Well, verses three through 11 reflect on who we are as humans. And, and Moses applies images to humans as well. Um, I will let you know they are not quite as awe-inspiring as in verses 1 and 2. First, in verse 3, we are turned back to dust. Dust, inconsequential, unremarkable, disposable in every way. We are like a speck of dust on God's meta-narrative strain. Verse 4 says... A thousand years are like a mere watch of the night. Think about a soldier watching the walls of the city for four hours. Just a, not even the whole night. Just a mere watch in the night. Do you know the oldest human being in scripture? His name was Methuselah. He reportedly lived for 969 years, according to Genesis. Interesting that even in Methuselah's elongated life, he is just, he's just a speck of dust, right? In the eyes of God. Verse 5 says that we're like a dream. Very real for a a short, disorienting time of slumber, but then quickly forgotten when the morning comes. Verse 5 also states that our lives are like grass. In the morning, it flourishes fresh and green, but quickly withers in the heat of the day. Verses 7 and 8, expound painfully on the reality of God's anger, his wrath. In Moses' words, we spend our entire lives under God's wrath. And this is where it starts to get pretty heavy for us. I promise we're not going to stay here the whole morning. But we spend our entire lives under God's wrath, like a speck of dust, a dream, a blade of withering grass for our entire life. 70, maybe 80 years if we're lucky. That's a bit heavy-handed, isn't it? Hard for us to swallow. But I think you've felt it. I believe that you felt it. I don't care how old you are here. I think you felt it at some point. You look at your life whether it's difficult and painful or blessed in every way and you say, "Is this it? Am I going to be remembered to human history at all? Am I am I even doing anything in this short-lived life that really really matters?" And now we might cringe when we read about God's wrath, but I want to remind you or assure you today that the object of God's wrath is not you and it's not me. It's sin. It's brokenness. His anger is aimed at sin in the world and our proclivity to make our home with sin rather than with God our home. We're under his wrath because sin is still at work in the world and it will be for our entire lives. We never fully escape it. So who are we? We're we're transients with with short lives. We work, we toil, we work hard, we're broken, and soon our years are going to come to an end and we'll be gone. That's heavy, right? How many of you would like to turn the corner from this right now? Because I would like to. What are we left with? What's our response to an eternal God and the reality of the brevity of our existence? Well, the only legitimate response comes in verse 12, where we have arrived at the heart of Moses' psalm. The response is to pray for wisdom. Teach us to count our days so that we might gain a wise heart. Moses knew the reality of sin as the people that he was leading were bowing down and worshiping to idols. He knew the brevity of life because he had already been assured that you will not live to see the promised land. You will not enter that place. You will die before that happens. He understood brokenness. He understood dependence. He understood weakness. But instead of fainting under the weight of all of that wrath and sin and and toil and work, he praised these simple words For all of us, and certainly for himself, teach us. What a great prayer for you. You want a simple prayer for the rest of your week? Teach me. Two words, teach me. Teach us to number our days, to understand the vast difference between an eternal God and finite human beings. Give us wise hearts to attend daily to the persistent reality that you are Lord and we are not. As Martin Luther quite liberally translated it, Teach us to reflect on the fact that we must die so that we might become wise. Isn't that great? Teach us to reflect on the fact that we must die so that we might become wise. Now, that might seem a little bit of a downer, it might seem macabre, but, but if Moses was paraphrasing Psalm 90 in our vernacular, I think he might say God is eternal and, and human life is, is fleeting. And all that we have for each day is the work before us, which serves as a constant reminder that at some point this is going to end and we're going to die. Now, it might seem odd to you, but the work that you have to do, whether it be the official job that you are gainfully employed in, or or the children that you parent, or the volunteering that you're committed to, or the schooling that you're engaged in, or the obligations that you're fulfilling, or the... The, the friends that you care for in your retirement, or, or the aging parents that you're caring for, at the end of the day, that work is a blunt reminder that life is short. That we're all gonna die at some point. That's our lot in life. It promises to be difficult and, and unending and persistent. It's the curse that Adam and Eve absorbed that you and I still live under, and, 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 and that work is good, but it's also hard. Now listen, I love my job. I think I love my job more than most of you love your jobs. But nothing causes me to examine my mortality more than to know that this is my life until I don't have life anymore. This is it, right? I'm going to work. I'm going to labor. That's a stifling thought to me, and maybe it is to you too. So I ask God, help me to number my days so I can gain a wise heart. I've been... um, observing a a current trend in the young adults in my life, mostly college students, some 20-somethings, and the term is adulting. Have you heard this? Adulting. Um, I've seen an intense fear in young adults at the realities of like fully jumping into adult life and and a resistance to fully engage in adult things, in adulthood. A recent study says that college students make 3,500 decisions in a day. 3,500 decisions in a day. The average working adult makes 35,000 decisions in a day. That's kind of scary stuff, isn't it? That's kind of weighty stuff. So the phenomena of adulting has emerged, which uh, in my observation is sort of this loose period where uh, young people try on traditionally adult things, a nine to five job, caring for a pet, getting up early, eating a balanced meal, wearing a button-up shirt, these kinds of things. And these are loose commitments, mind you. We're trying these things on. They're loose commitments so that these young adults can walk back more towards an adolescent life if they're just not ready for that. I had a young adult uh, tell me a couple years ago that the more adulting I do, the more scared I get that this is my life from here on out. Embracing adulthood means that I work, and I probably get married, and I probably have kids, and I own a home, and I work, and I work, and then I die. And guess what I replied? Yep, that's right. (laughs) This is your life. And I'm glad that you know this now, because even in the adult life, which might seem boring, and might seem prescribed, and might seem heavy, God can and will do great things. Here's what I want to say about adulting and to any young adults in the room who resonate with that. We can see this as immature behavior, but actually what I think is I think you understand the first half of the psalm better than the rest of us. You understand the weightiness of life. You're absorbing it and you're going, man, is this really what life is all about? And I want to say that this is a great place for you to be. It's a great place for you to be. I replied to this person, God can, can and will do great things through this because the reality is we all want our work, no matter how mundane it is, to be more than just what it is, don't we? I mean, we don't want our work to be for nothing. We don't want our work to be like dust, like we are. Something deep in us wants all of our labor to be worth something beyond just us. So I want to clearly say this morning that while our timelines might seem insignificant in the sight of God's greater timeline, our work is not insignificant. Or else Moses would not have ended his psalm talking about it. Whatever it is that you do matters because God can do his good work through your work. Moses picks up on this prayer as he continues in verses 11 through 16, with a plea for God to satisfy us in the morning, satisfy us in the work that we do, for him to give us days and years of gladness in the midst of our toil, that he might even be known, made known through our work and, and through the power available to us, which leads us to the culminating words that we started with this morning, the prayer that God might reach into our work and bless our work. Oh, prosper the work of our hands. This is not a prayer for personal prosperity, by the way. This is not a a prayer for for money and houses and, and retirement funds and vacation spots. This is a prayer that our hard work might actually bear some fruit, might do some good, might be beneficial in God's eyes. Remember, that this prayer is, is all within a certain framework. We remember that we're frail, we're limited, we're sinful. The eternal and steadfast love of God can transform that weakness, that feebleness, into something glorious and good. And that's the cry of my heart, so I pray it twice, just like Moses did. Cause my work to prosper, God. Please cause it to prosper. Help it to prosper. I'm often challenged in those coffee, breakfast, office meetings with some of you to, to think of work as a, as a place where God wants to do his work. I, I, I try and impress that upon people. But I often get this response from people, maybe even people in this room, well, Lars, you, I mean, you're a pastor, right? I mean, you, your work is more important than mine. You're doing God's work. You're God's man. This is what you're doing. Now, ministry is good. It's helpful. It's, it's a unique job. It's different than, than being a businessman or a homemaker or a janitor or whatever, But I almost always fire back this way. Yeah, but you can do ministry in the work that God has given you to do, ministry that I could never do as a pastor. You can pastor your office or the marketplace that you're in or your family or your classroom or the shop that you work in or the crew that you're working with in a way that no other person can It's the great equalizer that we get to pray the same prayer. Give me wisdom, Lord. Satisfy me in my work. Give me gladness and encouragement. Work through me. Empower me. Prosper my work. No matter what we do, we can all pray this prayer together. Paid, unpaid, doing what you love, doing what you hate. Short of work that stands in opposition to God, we can all join in that same prayer. Notice that Moses does not say, prosper the work that you've called me to do as long as I'm obedient and I listen and I'm able to find what you want me to do, Lord. No, it's prosper my work, prosper what I'm doing. Your work, whatever it is, is an avenue for God to work his purposes for the world. So how do we keep this prayer in our hearts and in our minds and on our tongues? Prosper the work, Lord, prosper the work. Well, verse 14, It says, satisfy me in the morning with your steadfast love. That's a powerful prayer. What if we woke up every day and we gave the work of today over to God? Wake me in the morning. Satisfy me in the morning. Give me satisfaction. Give me contentment in the morning, in the work that you've given me to do. And then, guess what, God? I'm going to wake up tomorrow, and I'm going to ask for the same thing, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. When we do that, when we start each morning and we say, God, give me contentment in what I do, what we're doing is we're we're placing ourselves appropriately on God's timeline rather than being slaves to the timelines that we create. And we do this because life is short and our work is important. And guess what? The fact that your life is short and that your work is important is actually the good news this morning because it's the beginning of a very healthy and wise Psalm 90 cycle, which we see, which we've talked about. And it starts like this. We have a proper assessment of life on God's infinite timeline. We're reminded that we're dust reminded that we're just a very, very small portion, often insignificant. And when we have that proper assessment, it causes us to ask for deep wisdom because we go, this is short, God. I need your wisdom in knowing how to live, how to work, how to do this. And when we do that and God grants us this wisdom, it makes our work so important that we wake up each day and we say, God, give me contentment and cause this work to prosper. This is a wonderfully healthy cycle for you to be a part of. Once we've reached the point where we're able to say, I'm dust, all I've built up for myself is dust, then God can be prayed to and asked to prosper that work so that it might be something more, something that is truly prosperous in God's eyes. When we're dwarfed by the size of God, buckling under the weight of the reality of his steadfast love, we're actually exactly where we should be. We're right where we should be when we're saying to ourselves, how did I even get here with this? I mean, I'm I'm a carpenter's daughter from Milwaukee. I'm a banker from Darien. I'm a stay-at-home mom from Hinsdale. I'm an administrator from Downers Grove. I'm a student from LaGrange. What am I even doing here in the enormity of an eternal, everlasting God? And once we say those kinds of words, words that no one can form for us, words that are only produced under a holy weight, We get to the point where we can say, Lord, teach me, make me wise, prosper the work. And when we say that, I believe that's when we hear the voice of Jesus, the one who comes to redeem sin and brokenness, the one who takes the yoke upon himself, and he replies to us, now remember, dear one, your Father in heaven holds you and your work in very high regard. His favor rests upon you. His creative power is within you. And should you seek him, there is no work that is given over to him that cannot be made to prosper. May it be so for each and every one of us, I pray. Amen. I want to invite us to just a brief time of prayer. If you would close your eyes and just think of the work that God has given you to do. Maybe this is your day of rest. Maybe you have to work today. I don't know. But think about the work that God has for you today, tomorrow, and the days to come. I want to read this psalm one more time, a different translation this time. And I want it to be our prayer as we consider the work that God has given us to do. God, it seems like you've been our home forever, long before the mountains were born, long before you brought earth itself to birth. From once upon a time to kingdom come, you are God. And we are no more than a wispy dream, no more than a blade of grass that, that springs up gloriously with the rising sun and is cut down without a second thought. Your anger is far away, too much for us. We're at the end of our rope. We live for 70 years or so. With luck, we might make it to 80. And what do we have to show for it? Trouble and toil and trouble and a marker in a graveyard. But, O oh Lord, teach us to live well. Teach us to live wisely and well. Surprise us with love at the daybreak, and then we'll skip and dance all the day long. And let the loveliness of our Lord, our God, rest upon us, confirming the work that we do. Oh, yes, Lord, affirm the work that you would have us do.